Listen to the word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I invite you to bow with me as I pray. Father in heaven, your word is truth. And yet even as we, even as we hear it read, our hearts already resist. Lord, we come as people who think we know the, the best way to accomplish the tasks of life. We, we come as people who, who resist your, your authority in our lives. Lord, that's true even for those of us who have, who have put our trust in Christ. And so make us humble, obedient followers of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, for those who, who have not yet believed, Lord, draw them from darkness to light, from death to life. Give them the faith to believe. The gospel that we have heard proclaimed in your word, the gospel that we have sung and spoken, the forgiveness that comes to us through Jesus. Lord, I pray on this day as we gather as a congregation to, to consider the ways in which you have worked in our, in our history and the ways in which you are leading us into the future. Lord, I pray that you would make us people who are humble and dependent upon your mercy and grace. Lord, let us not rely on our, on our plans or our strength or our wisdom or our wealth, but let us invest all of that into your kingdom, trusting in your spirit to lead us, to guide us, to encourage us. Lord, as we hear your word, comfort us. Many of us, Father, come to you with, with great sorrow, with, with, with the feeling of hopelessness and helplessness, and so we need your grace to correct us, to instruct us, to comfort us. Father in heaven, we come not because we are worthy, not because we deserve to have you speak to us. We come because you are the God who has chosen to speak to us through Jesus Christ, the full revelation of your power and your wisdom. And so we come in the name of Jesus. Jesus, our Savior who died for us. We pray in his name. Amen. It doesn't take a genius to do your taxes. Okay, that's the tagline that you've seen on, on recent commercials. And, and what happens in the, in the commercial is an ordinary person is working through their taxes using this very simple-to-use website, and a Nobel Prize winner or a, a theoretical physicist, an, an Ivy League professor, a NASA scientist walks into the room and shows them, look how simple it is. And in the, in the commercial, it's, it's, it's silly because you have this genius standing there saying, push that button on your phone. The, the question is asked, well, can I deduct this for my taxes? 
and they just speak into their phone. Can I deduct this from the taxes? Yes. Push here. And all the genius does is repeat what the website has prompted. Now, it's to make you think that the taxes really are just that simple and that if you use this website, then, then it will make things easier for you. Because the, the silliness of the commercial is that the genius is simply parroting back to you what you already know, what you were just told by the website. See, the, the struggle of the, the church in Corinth was that they were, they were longing for a genius, for an expert, for, for some scholar, for some philosopher of the age to come to them and tell them this is what is true. The problem is the geniuses they were listening to, all they were really doing was parroting back to them what the Corinthians already believed. But you see, that's, that's the struggle when it comes to, in, in, in lots of areas of life, it makes sense for us to, to listen to experts. You know, I, and, and, and we should marvel at the fact that, that, that NASA can shoot a rocket into space and that, that the telephone in my pocket connects to a satellite and that, that a teacher can control a classroom of rowdy children. Those are things that take experts. But when it comes to the big questions of life, to religious questions, we sometimes expect that, well, I would need an expert to figure this out. And so we look to the wisdom of the world. It was a temptation for the Corinthians. And they lived in that part of the world, the cradle of philosophy, the place where the smartest men, men whose names you know thousands of years later, lived and worked and spoke. And so they were tempted to, to turn to the expert, to the genius, and say, how do I find my way to God? How do I make myself right with God? The problem is, any human attempt to do that ends in foolishness. Because it doesn't matter if you're, if you're a genius of the stat, stature of, of Plato or Aristotle. Any plan that, that you construct from here, from, from earth, is like, is like trying to build that ladder into heaven. It doesn't matter how, how, how high you think you can go. It's, it's, on a, it's on a false foundation. And Paul is telling the, the church in Corinth, you actually need something different. You need God himself to speak to you. The only way to figure this out is if God reveals it to you. There is no genius who can show up, no, no religious leader, no philosopher who can come to you and say, this is the plan, I've figured it out. Unless, unless God is the one who has spoken. And so that's what Paul has done. He's shown up in Corinth, this place where the traveling philosophers were the celebrities of the day, commanding large audiences and significant fees to speak of the, the deep philosophies of life. And Paul shows up with a message that sounds like foolishness. You see, there was this man who lived in Israel who taught a message of, of God's love, and this man gave his life and died on a cross. And you see right there, the story is, is nonsense to anyone listening. And so what Paul does is he sets, he sets up in this passage the contrast between the, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. From the perspective of the world, when they look at the message of the cross, it sounds like foolishness. But once you understand the message of the cross, then you realize the wisdom of the world is foolishness. 
And so that's the contrast that Paul sets. And he, and he says that he, he starts here, if, if we look, look back at these verses, the, describing the wisdom of the world, it's a phrase he uses there in verse 21. But he, he, he's really saying it's, it's simply human wisdom. Look back at, at verse 17. This was a verse that, that I didn't read yet this morning. We looked at a couple of weeks ago. Where the Apostle Paul is describing his ministry. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, Paul is setting the contrast between the, the message of man, the, the words of human wisdom, and the wisdom of God. Because Paul will say that, look at verse 21, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Okay, now, I understand when you're, you're hearing that read fast. It's, wait, whose wisdom where? Okay. What Paul is saying, God, God is the one who made you, and the only way you can know God is if he makes himself known to you. That's God's plan. That's God's wisdom. You cannot, on your own, build a tower to heaven. Actually, I mean, that's been tried. You can't build your, your, your tower to heaven. You cannot know God without God making himself known to you. That's the argument that the apostle makes when he writes to the, the church in Rome. In the first chapter of, of the book of, of Romans, Paul makes the same argument that, that, yes, we know that God exists because we are made by him. We see his power at work in the world, but we cannot know the, know the, the path to salvation without God revealing it to us. This is the way the apostle describes it in Romans 1, verses 19 through 20. God says, the, the apostle Paul tells us, what may be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to everyone whom God has made. What may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So you and I have this, this, this knowledge that God exists because we look at the world and we understand that, that there is something more. We have this longing in our hearts that, that I don't want this to be all that there is. And yet, what Paul goes on to argue is that, that because of our sin, we have, we have suppressed this knowledge of God. This knowledge that, that was given to us because we're made by God, we've, we've in our sin, we've, we've pressed it down and, and we've acted as if we don't really know it. I mean, it's almost like a, a child playing with a, with a beach ball in the pool. Every, every time they you know, kind of flip themselves up onto it, they can get it under the water a little bit, but, it, but it's always pressing back against them. It, that, that, that frustration, that that do you feel when you look at the world and think, this isn't the way things should be? Shouldn't God be doing something? That's this knowledge of God. But in your sin, we're, we're pushing it down. And so, so Paul is saying to us, the only way, the only way for us to know who God really is is if God makes himself known to us. And so this then, this then destroys human wisdom. It, it humbles us. Look at the questions that, that Paul, Paul asks in verse 20, back in our chapter of 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 20, Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? It's almost as if he's, he's challenging you. Do you, you want to step up and explain to me how you really know this, this truth? Do you want to go toe-to-toe with God? 
Whether you're the, the scholar, the, the Bible scholar who, who, who understands the deep things because you've, you've been reading through, or whether you are the, the philosopher who, who in your ivory tower has pondered these great questions, Paul is really saying, where, where is the one who thinks he is wise? Because God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Because the wisdom of this world is always self-serving. It's always to, to prop ourselves up. The, the images of God that we create are, are merely reflections of, of what we want. And, and sometimes then we, we, might, we might think here that, okay, well, this, this is actually sort of one of those frustrations that you might have with, with people of faith, Christians, who, who read the Bible and say, oh, see, the, the, what, here's what the, the contrast Paul is making between smart people and dumb people. And only dumb people would believe stuff like the Bible, the story of, of a God who dies on a cross and is raised from the dead. I mean, that's, that's sometimes how we feel. Now, we might, not, we might not put it in those terms. We might put it in, this, in the, the more philosophical categories of it. Of it's this, this conflict between a, a scientific view of the world, where you can go out and you can analyze things, and then a, a religious view that just accepts on, on, on dumb instinct. You, you, you accept fairy tales and myths. But do you, do you see that's not the contrast Paul is making? He's not making contrast between human wisdom and human folly. He's not saying only smart people can figure this out. No, he's, he's saying none of you can figure it out. Because it's not as if a, a religious view of the world is, is antithetical to a scientific view of the world. I mean, actually, when you, when you go back and you read through history, many of the, the prominent uh, scientists of, of past generations were Christians. Because they started with the, the belief that God made the world, God ordered the world, and so when I go and explore it, it might actually make some sense. See, religion and, and science aren't, aren't at odds with each other. The real contrast is really between arrogance, arrogant human wisdom, where in your scientific view, you don't just say, this is how a, a, a plant takes energy from the sun so that I can then eat it and gain that energy. You say, and now I can tell you the the philosophical purpose for this and the meaning of life. And I can tell you how everything was made and, and who you are and who you're meant to be. So the contrast is, is really that God is humbling each one of us. That in our arrogance, we, we are like those of whom Isaiah spoke, whom Paul quotes in verse, verse 19, where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate where you feel like you've gotten as far as you can go and it still doesn't make sense. You still can't make, make everything fit together. Because Paul is saying the, the, the true message that you need, this is that contrast between the foolishness of the world and, and the message of the cross. He's saying the real message you need, verse 18, is the message of the cross. And look at how he, how he describes it. He says that, that this message is foolishness, in verse 18, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, it's this contrast between human, between human wisdom and God's wisdom. The message of the cross then sounds like foolishness to those who don't believe, to those who are perishing. But in reality, it is the power of God to those who are being saved. This is based on God's work, God's action, God making himself known. And even the way that the Apostle Paul uses those, those verbs here. They're, they're present tense verbs. He doesn't just say 
to you who were saved, and you, you can, that's theologically correct. You can speak that way. In other places, Paul will talk that way. He'll talk about your salvation, if you're a Christian, as being past tense. It's something that God did for you. But notice what he, what he actually says here, to you who are being saved. It's a present tense, continuous work of God in your life. Because your salvation, yes, it, it includes that moment in history when, when God forgave your sins and declared you to be, to be holy and righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus that's given to you. But it's then that ongoing work of salvation, of, of changing you and transforming you. See, we're, the emphasis here is on the work of God. God is the one who is doing the work of saving us. And so the, the contrast is clear. There are only two types of people in the world. Look back at verse 18. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. That's it. Now, now Paul will, will draw a contrast between Jews and, and Gentiles, but they all fall into that category of those who are perishing. There are two types of people in the world. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And the obvious question that's before us this morning is, which category do you belong to? Are you perishing or are you being saved? Now, you, you're already wanting to argue with me that, Kevin, I mean, this sounds like sort of this either-or kind of fallacy. Like, can I, can I kind of carve out this, this more neutral territory in the middle, this place of, like, figuring it out? You know, you can have perishing, being saved, and figuring it out. There is no and figuring it out category. In, in God's taxonomy, as he looks at humanity, that figuring it out category is the perishing category. And some of us actually hide in that, that well, I'm still trying to figure it out. And we, we do so almost even with a sense of humility. You know, it would be arrogant of me to act as if I had everything figured out here. And so, so I'll humbly stay in this you know, I'm still asking questions kind of category. And, and you think to yourself, and you Christians, see, here you go again, kind of chopping humanity in half. You're going to hell, but you are being saved. And so you feel like that, that doesn't feel like a, a very welcoming kind of message to, to carve out those that are perishing, being destroyed because of their sin. But really, maybe if you walk into the conversation thinking that you are smart enough to figure out the way God should do it, God, your two-category system just doesn't seem fair. You should really listen to me, God, and at least add a third category, but probably a bunch of different categories. And really, God, this is how you should do it. You should just let everyone figure out whatever they want and then let everyone get into the you're being saved category, no matter how they want to do it. See, if you walk into the conversation with the conclusion already determined and actually wanting to tell God how it should work, then maybe you should stop worrying about pointing the finger at somebody like me, a Christian preacher who's telling you there's only one way to be saved. And maybe you should actually look at yourself and consider whether or not the message you're bringing is really a, a message of humility. Because if you're quick to jump to a charge of arrogance against Christians, perhaps it simply exposes your own arrogance. Now, Paul will, will push this, this contrast. He'll explain it to us a little more as we look in verse 22. He describes the, the, the reason that the, the cross 
the, the message of Christ crucified is, is frustrating to people. In verse 22, he, he talks about the two categories then of people within those that are perishing. He says there are the Jews. And remember, Paul is a man who grew up. He was Jewish by birth, by training. He is one who, was, who understood the law. He was so zealous for God that, that when he started out in ministry, remember, he was a church destroyer. He wasn't initially a church planter. He was a church crusher. He was a, a murderer. That's how zealous he was as a Jew for the message that, that he thought was true. And, and he says, Jews, what they demand when they hear this message of, of the cross, they demand, a, a, they demand miraculous signs. If God would show up and do what he do, has done for us in the past, part the Red Sea, pass over us, rescue us from our enemies, if God would do that, then I would believe. But that's not the way the, many of the people in Corinth. Yes, there was a, a Jewish community in Corinth, but, but most of the members of, of the church were, were Gentiles, those who had, who had grown up not Jewish. That's what Gentile means. You're just not Jewish. And, he, and Paul says in verse 22 that, that the Greeks, the Gentiles, they look for wisdom. Well, that makes sense to us. I mean, when you think of Greece, even today, yes, you might think of a, of a vacation along the, the Mediterranean, but you think of your philosophy classes. You think of the, the wisdom, and so they're demanding wisdom. You might th- you, we, we might be tempted to say, well, this is, that's historically interesting, Kevin, to know that, that these were the contrasts. But really, what Paul is doing is describing for us not merely something that was historically true, the way the Jews and the Greeks initially responded to the gospel. He's actually exposing what's true about our own hearts. These are the two primary idolatries of our hearts. A demand for power. God, show up and prove to me how big and powerful you are. And the demand for wisdom. I can figure it out. Do You see, that's what the Jews are doing. They want, they want God to show his power through miraculous signs. The Greeks, they want, they want to gain wisdom through their philosophies, through their insights into the world. But that's the way you and I work today as well. Paul is describing our own hearts. Yes, we might not be asking God to show up and, and part the Red Sea to prove his power to us, but, but we are people who seek after power by gathering wealth, by, by putting ourselves in positions of power. I mean, think of it. Think of the way, the way you are responding to the, to the, the, the political primaries for, for the president. Okay? Many of you are just plain frustrated. And part of the reason for our frustration, I mean, the reason, the reason many of us look at, look at politics and think, well, can politicians really be trusted? They're making huge promises. They never live up to their promises. Part of the reason that, that we have such profound frustration when it comes to the process is that as Americans, we have put too much hope in politics. We expect po- politicians to be able to solve the world's problems but you understand that, that most of the problems can't be solved by laws or enforcement. And even that feeling of powerlessness that you have, perhaps, like what is my one little vote going to do to change the world? Even that feeling of powerlessness is, is because of this idolatry that, that this is the way to change the world. This is what I need. And so I, I'm not saying don't get involved. I want you to be involved. I want you to vote. Your vote matters as as people who follow Christ, we should be people that are concerned about justice, 
and, and concern for the poor and, and those in need and wanting to change our communities and our, our culture and our country. But we don't simply trust in politics. See, there is a, there's a bigger message, something that's needed more. But we do it just as the Greeks did through wisdom. Thinking if I, and not just in the degrees and titles that we add to our, to our resumes, but we do it in, in the information that maybe if, I, if I'm on the inside of, at work, if I have the, the ear of my boss, if I can, can keep this information for myself, then I can position myself rightly. Or we think that, that, well, maybe I really do need to just study it more. Or maybe, maybe it's what we need to solve the world's problems, is, or we just need greater advances in, in technology and science and education. That's what will solve the world's problems. Just a little more knowledge. And those are all good things. But they're not enough. Because what Paul says, look at what Paul says in contrast to the demands of the Jews for miraculous signs, the Greeks seeking after wisdom. Look at verse 23. Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. That's the message of the church. A crucified Savior. Christ crucified sounds like an oxymoron. Two things that you can't put together. That's why it's a a stumbling block to the Jews, why it's scandalous to the Jews. A Messiah, a king who would die on a cross? No. You must have it wrong because that would, by definition, make him not a king. Kings don't die on crosses. And that message of Christ crucified is foolishness to the Gentiles. But your, your religion is based on the historical truth of a guy who died on a cross? I mean, the cross is an affront to those who ask for signs, to those who seek power, because the cross is a display of humility and disgrace. God himself, with nails through his flesh, crucified by sinful men. The cross is an affront to those who want wisdom, because who would willingly endure such shame? And part of the problem is that that for us, the horror of crucifixion is so distant. It's so historically removed from us. We miss the immediacy of it because we've never seen it take place. The people in Corinth have. Because this is the way the Caesar keeps his power over his kingdom. By crucifying the the rebels against his authority. See, we miss the the gruesomeness of it because we we see it displayed in in storybook Bibles and not in in a man whose flesh has been ripped from his body, the Son of God crucified on our behalf. See, when the Corinthians heard this, that the message of the gospel is the message of Christ crucified, their immediate reaction would be like being hit in the stomach. No! No, they would say, it can't be. The Messiah crucified, you have the wrong Messiah. No, a man who would willingly endure the cross, you have the wrong messenger. They would react to it in horror. See, but we don't, we don't want to hear the, the message of the cross. It feels like foolishness to us. We don't want to hear it because it's, it's a message that feels powerless. 
We don't want to hear the message of the cross because it, it sounds to us like foolishness. Why would God do this? But you see, in the message of the cross is the profound wisdom of God. That you and I, who through our sin have, have repressed the knowledge of God, who have, who have turned from God and gone our own way, God himself arrives. God himself, Jesus, takes on human flesh, truly born of a woman, so that he could die in our place. That's the wisdom of God, the grace of God, that God would die for us, that Jesus would be crucified for us. And so it's why Paul can say, you're looking for power, you're looking for, for wisdom in the world. No, not, not in, in the things of this world, not in miraculous signs or in wisdom, but look at verse 24. We, we find Jesus Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's the one that we have. And you see, as this message begins to capture your heart, then you will do foolish things like the Apostle Paul has done. Go and plant churches in places where they keep trying to kill you. I mean, literally, at times, they dragged the Apostle's body outside of a city and just left him for dead. And yet he says, but I have to go. I have to preach the gospel. It's why, why Will and Grace were willing to go and, and start a church, and this is, how they're, this is the plan. We're going to gather people to pray so that a church can begin. That's the plan the world would look at. What's, what's your marketing strategy? What's, what's your infiltration strategy? You're going to need a, a bigger group to make that happen. You're going to pray and expect a church to grow. That's why Josh and Christy are willing to go to the kind of place in the world. The Middle East where, where yes, to claim the name of Christ puts you on a hit list. Because the message of the cross changes everything. And when you've received the forgiveness of Jesus, when you've put your trust in him, then you begin to see it as wisdom. The world still looks at it as foolishness. You, as a church, preaching the, the message of the cross, you're fools. You think that's going to change anything? That's going to do anything? Why would you keep chasing after a, a foolish history, a, a myth? a fable of, of a crucified Messiah. You do understand, don't you, that a crucified Messiah is foolishness. That's what, that's what you might be thinking. And yet when you see the love of Jesus Christ, when you understand that the message of the cross is the love of God on display, the Messiah crucified for you, then you become willing to, to preach the gospel. See, the wisdom of God humbles us. It forces us to turn to him, to trust in him, to proclaim the message of the cross. Jordan Munge was, a, was always skeptical about the existence of God. She remembers actually one of her earliest memories was when she was four years old and she challenged a, a little boy at his birthday party saying, well, then how do you know the Bible is true? Because she grew up having discussions about the, the big questions of life from an atheistic perspective. Her, her dad was a philosophy professor, an atheistic philosophy professor. And so when, when Jordan entered Harvard University, she entered without any belief in God, actually confident that God did not exist. And one of her, her, her projects was, was to critique a, a classmate's essay. And the, in the essay, the, the classmate defended his faith in God. So she critiqued him in class, but 
but she needed more answers, so she began emailing this classmate. They would meet, and as college students are prone to do, talk late into the night about life's big questions. And what, what she began to realize was the questions she was asking of Christianity were questions she'd never asked about her own way of looking at the world, her own wisdom. How could she make sense of a world in which she would, she would sit there and complain that, well, God, must, he just must not care because he's not doing anything. And she would wonder, well, why do I feel like God should be doing something? Why do I feel like things are wrong? It doesn't actually make sense, she began to see, in her own view of the world. She was quick to, to call into question the, the, the beliefs of her classmate and call him foolish, but she began to realize she didn't have answers herself. It was actually an assignment from an atheist professor that pushed her deeper into these questions. She began to read the Bible looking for answers, read Christian philosophers struggling with these. And it was Christian friends proclaiming to her God's love that challenged her own foolishness. She, she had looked at the cross as being this grotesque image of, really, that's the message you want to believe? A Savior who dies? But then she says, as she heard it, she began to see that, that the cross no longer seemed like, like God's anger at humanity, but was really a display of God's love, a loving sacrifice for the good of humanity. The foolishness of the cross had become for her the power of God. So Jordan began to attend worship. She was baptized in the church, and, and immediately she just began telling people about this message. She couldn't, she couldn't stop. She would just be waiting for a shuttle to take her across campus, and she would just ask a, a, a classmate, somebody that she was just meeting, so, so tell me about your religious background. You tell me about the, the way you're, you're wrestling through these questions. I mean, we're, we're here on this Ivy League campus. We're the, we're the cream of the crop, and, and what kind of answers have you found? And, and often she was given an opportunity to share her own story of putting her trust in Christ, she, she met another student, Corinne. They, they actually both showed up as the, the shuttle was driving away. And so their only option was to walk. And so they walked together. And she began to tell Corinne the message. And Corinne's roommate had been sharing this story and asking Corinne to come to Bible study with her. Come to church with me. And finally, Corinne said yes. See, to follow Christ is to admit your own foolishness. It's to receive the grace of God that is given to us in the cross of Christ. And then it means that we are those who proclaim the message of the cross. We preach Christ crucified. To those who are perishing, the message sounds like foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your your wisdom is on display for us in your word, that you would send your son, Jesus, to be our savior, our rescuer, our king. So, Father in heaven, we come in Jesus' name asking that you would give us, give us the boldness, the, the faith to, to proclaim this message. Lord, in the face of our doubts, give us confidence. Lord, we rest not in our own ability to, to figure out life's big questions and conundrums, but in your, your wisdom and your grace to be with us even as we ask. But for those who have gathered with us today but come without faith in Jesus, Lord, give them the faith to believe, rescue them from their sins, that they would see your gospel, 
the message of the cross of our Savior Jesus for what it truly is, your power on display, your love bringing salvation to us. Lord, even today as we gather for our our luncheon and congregational meeting, Lord, I pray that you you would let us focus on this message of Jesus Christ crucified. Lord, that as we gather around tables to eat, that you would strengthen us by the meal and by our fellowship together, but that you would encourage us by the hope of the gospel to go with the message of the cross. Lord, let us cling to your power, to your love and your mercy. Let your wisdom, Jesus Christ, our Savior, be on display. Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name.